Well, good morning, everyone. If you don't know me, if we've not met, my name is Josh, and I'm not Chris. Imagine that. I'm not on staff. Uh, I'm not one of the lead teaching pastors, um, but Chris did ask if I would uh, bring the message this morning. Um, So if you're just jumping in, you've caught us kind of in the midst of a journey where we're looking at the message of the gospel, and the title of this series is Formed by the Gospel. Um, We're looking at how God relates to man and how man responds to God. We started with creation back in Genesis, and we're sort of moving through the scripture. So two weeks back, we looked at the biblical account of creation and how God created it all and said that it was all good. Last week, we saw as a result of sin, how death and separation from God entered the world. And ultimately, we define sin as sort of man saying to God, I know better than you, and I'm going to do what I want to do anyway. Um, Chris left us kind of with the quote of, um, in the end, God says to man, thy will be done when man doesn't submit to God. So really, the, the problem in the world isn't politics, it isn't all these other things. Ultimately, it's us, the human race, mankind, deciding we know better than God, and we're going to do what we want just because we do. And ultimately, those selfish choices impact other people, and that's how we get death and, and disease and destruction and all this other stuff, because we decided we knew better than God. So this morning, we're going to begin to see the light. We're going to take a look at God's plan to redeem mankind from the mess we've gotten ourselves into. And let's be honest, we really don't have any hope of getting out of this on our own, apart from God. Uh, We're going to read, starting in Hebrews 3, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful also in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has much more honor than the house itself. So Hebrews, the idea here is that the writer of Hebrews is reaching out to his Jewish contemporaries, right? In the New Testament, you kind of see the church take two paths, right? You've got people who have been the people of God, the Hebrew nation, the Jewish nation, different words to describe that since the covenant with Abraham, right? And then through Paul, you've got this idea of reaching the Gentiles, right? And so a lot of the New Testament scriptures are written to Gentile churches that are not Hebrews, The book of Hebrews is specifically reaching out to people who grew up sort of in the Jewish tradition and tying what they know from Jewish scripture to Jesus as the fulfillment of that and saying, look, this this is the evidence. This is how all this sort of connects and works together, right? Um, So why is Jesus compared to Moses? What is Moses' significance here in the New Testament? Um, Again, sort of that, that tying together. And Moses is the author of what the Jews called the Pentateuch. So what we call the first five books of the Bible, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The, the Jewish people would call that the Pentateuch. Or, and that was, they knew that to be, you know, sort of Moses as their father authored these scriptures. And, and this is kind of what we hang our hat on is our origin story as the Jewish people. Um, Moses is also an important part of the story, and he acts honestly as a Christ type, delivering Hebrews from Egyptian slavery into the promised land. 
Um, Moses is an example, a foreshadowing, if you will, of the Redeemer character that we see in Christ. So last week, again, we looked at how man jumped in and sort of derailed God's perfect plan through sin. This week, we're going to take a look at several examples of how, in spite of man's continued failures, God is faithful, always reaching out, always making a way of safety or redemption. And these examples serve as foreshadowings of Jesus, the Messiah, to come. And ultimately, demonstrate to us God's nature, right? His, his character and his heart of love for mankind. So let's sort of pick up the story, if you will. And when I say story throughout this message, I don't mean story like Cinderella. Uh, this is, this, we believe that the Bible is true. We believe that these are historical accounts of Scripture. So not story in like a, a fantasy sense. Um, so we know the story of the Garden of Eden. We read it last week and how Adam and Eve were exiled as a result of their sin. They destroyed their shot at paradise. And so what happened next is that generations and generations of mankind are living on the earth, right? They're reproducing and generally doing the kinds of things that people do, right? Some good and mostly bad. <laughs> um, you know, I, I have this saying I've developed in my own life when dealing with a situation where I encounter someone who's made a choice that's just really disappointing or frustrating or difficult, and it says, people are people and do people things. And, uh, you know, all of us are people, and all of us have done people things, right? Um, and so you kind of see that through Scripture. So the Bible is full of these accounts, and yet with, with each and every one of these accounts, you get a picture of God's mercy in the midst of people doing people things. Um, we, we often read these, and we tend to focus on the judgment, right? And what I'd like to point us to this morning is focusing on the mercy and seeing the goodness of God in the midst of God uh, bringing judgment. Now, let's, let's sort of tackle the elephant in the room, right? If God doesn't maintain his righteousness, if God doesn't demand justice, right? If someone wrongs you, do you want justice on, on your behalf for the, the way in which you've been wronged? Yeah, that's why we have a legal system, right? Somebody breaks into your house, steals your stuff. I'll give you a perfect example. Last Sunday, or I'm sorry, last Saturday, we're driving down the road, Stopped, somebody's about to make a left-hand turn, lady behind us, rear-ends us. I got Anna and the kids in the car, right? Fortunately, it wasn't a big deal, kind of more of a fender bender, right? But this happens, so I turn my hazards on. There's a sheer drop-off to the right side of the roadway. So I turn in to the place that we were all stopped for the previous car to turn into with my flashers on. And the lady behind us who hit us just down the road, right? Disappointing. In that moment, I want someone to enact justice I want to be able to call the police. I want to be able to file a report. I want to be able to make a claim on their insurance and get restitution for what's happened to us, right? I don't want vengeance necessarily. I'm not chasing the lady down. But, you know, they're, they're a system of justice, right? Well, what does justice look like on behalf of the lady who hit me? You know, maybe she's on her way to the hospital to, to either welcome, and it was an older lady, so maybe welcome a new grandchild or maybe, maybe a loved one's in the hospital and she's trying to make it there to say goodbye in their final moments. I don't know, right? But there's two sides to justice, right? And the, the, the deal is we as humans aren't qualified to make that decision. Thank God we have a God who is qualified. And when we see God's judgments throughout Scripture, it's really not our place to judge that. Um, but what we need to do and what we often miss is see the mercy. We see the goodness of God, sort of the, the remnant that he's always carrying through. So let's, let's take a look at Genesis 
6, verses 5 and 8, sort of as our first example. Um, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now this is just a couple chapters after the six-day creation. God, you know, on the first day said, let there be light, and then made waters and land and animals and birds and finally humans, right? And he looked at it and he said it was good. And here a couple chapters later, God says he regrets making them. Is that because of God's choice or because of man's choice? Submit to you, it's because of man's choice, right? So God says he's going to blot out everything. And here's our, here's our hope, right? Here's our redemption. Here's God's mercy. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In Genesis 7, 1, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Right, so this is the story of the flood. A lot of us probably know the stories. Maybe we even remember the Sunday school songs. You know, you're listening to the Donut Man. You know, Noah took the animals two by two. Right? Um, but let's look at what's really going on here. Just a few trans, uh, generations after it's all good, and, and God's going to destroy the earth because it's gotten so wretched, so defiled through man's choices, through people doing people stuff. Right? That, that God sort of sees no other path to redemption except, you know what, let's wipe it all out. Let's save one dude, the most righteous dude on the earth, Noah. Let's save him and his family, and let's start over. Um, so if we look at kind of the story of Noah and, and building the ark and how this all goes, uh, scholars say it probably took Noah from 50 to 75 years to build the ark. And that's with God in his ear going, all right, look, check this out. Get some gopher wood, whatever that is. And, you know, cubits, which is, I think, like the measurement from the tips of your elbow or tips of your fingers to your elbow and then uh, lay it out. And, but God, ultimately, he doesn't say, hey, just go build a boat and hope that it floats. He gives him step-by-step -step instructions, right? So, again, even in the midst of being saved, it's not just the fact that Noah is saved, but it's the fact that God is, like, patient and long-suffering. And he says, hey, build it this way, right? And take this kind of wood and this kind of pitch and these dimensions and make this all happen. So God ordains to Noah and is patient with him for 75 years while he builds it. Imagine this, right? Imagine you're with your child and you've told them for the umpteenth time not to do the thing, right? And they do the thing again. Do you wait 75 years to, to be like... I need to punish you for doing the thing, but I need to make sure that you understand. And no, it's, I mean, we, we as people tend to react real quickly, right? But God has made the decision 75 years prior, all right, this is it. We're, we're, we're past the point of no return. We're going to make this decision. And then he takes another 75 years to craft the way of escape through Moses, or th sorry, through Noah, right? So <clears throat> Noah and his family make it through the flood, right? Everyone gets off the boat with a fresh, clean state, uh, slate, a fresh start, new earth, new vegetation, right? Everything's growing. And this is, like, in a way, sort of their Eden round, too, right? They get another shot at this. Does it last? No. Sadly, it doesn't last. So, um, unfortunately, the very next thing Scripture records is the Tower of Babel. 
Now, if you don't know that story, basically people get together and they go, you know what, let's be like God. Kind of sounds like in the garden, you know, if you eat the fruit, then you'll be like God, right? So they go, let's be like God, but in this time we'll build a tower. We'll build a tower that reaches to heaven. We'll make our own way to heaven. We don't need God. We as men will construct a tower and we'll get to heaven on our own. And so, again, right after the flood, you know, a couple generations later, and God's like, y'all, I kind of said don't do this. What are you doing? So, so this time, God confuses the language. He, he spreads the people out. Um, and again, even in what is a judgment of God, his command was be fruitful and multiply and cover the earth, right? So people don't do that. They congregate in an area. They build a tower, and God's like, y'all, I, I said let's do this. And he pushes people into what ultimately will be for their good, right? We have diversity in nations, and we have people on the different areas of the earth because of what happened at the Tower of Babel. Um, again, God's, God's mercy throughout the midst of judgment. So continuing with the story of these people, the next thing that happens is we pick up with this dude called Abram. Now, if you don't know, Abram and Abraham are the same dude. He's, his name given at birth is Abram, and then God makes a covenant with him later and changes his name to Abraham. But the portion of scripture we're going to look at, he's Abram at that point, so I'm going to call him Abram. We good with that? You know, Father Abraham. Father Abram doesn't really have kind of the same deal, but same guy, right? <laughs> so, so God makes a covenant, and he promises to bless him, multiply, and make a great nation from him. And so part of that is Abram has this nephew, Lot, that's traveling around with him. Right? And, and you even begin at that point to see this blessing, this multiplication. They've got so many sheep and goats and herds and cattle and whatever that they can't even stay in the same place. So they come to this agreement, and, and Abraham says, or sorry, Abram says to Lot, he's like, all right, dude, look, there's, we're killing all the grass, our flocks, there's too much space. You, we go up on this mountaintop, and he's like, look. And of course, Lot, being the younger dude, is like, oh, that looks nice to me. That looks like the best land. I'm going to take that for myself. So he does, and Abram stays over here. So eventually Lot gets himself in some trouble. He gets himself in this place called Sodom. Now, if you've heard of Sodom or Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, you know, yeah, this is, this is that Sodom we're talking about. Not a good place. So again, picking up in Scripture, Genesis 18, 20, and 26, the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is very great, and their sin is very grave. I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I'll know. So the men turned out from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there's 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing. To put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare is the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. So Abraham here knows God's character, right? Now, again, we're a couple generations after the flood where God wiped out the whole earth. And this is one of the things you hear unbelievers say. You say, How could a loving God wipe out the entire earth with a flood. And yet Abraham, who's just come through the flood, looks at God and says, you are a just judge. You're a just God, and there's no version of you 
that wipes out the righteous with the wicked. So in that, we can sort of trust that it really was as bad as God said it was, and the flood was the way to do things. So Abraham's acting as this intermediary, right? He's sort of this go-between, between the people of Sodom, who are utterly wicked, and God, interceding on their behalf. Like, hey, God, how about if there's 50? Now, I don't know what the, the population of Sodom and Gomorrah was, but in the story, you sort of get the idea that there's lots of people there. I mean, at least two cities full, right? So that's more than 50. Abraham and God go back and forth. Well, they don't really go back and forth. Abraham keeps going back to God and dropping his number and dropping his number and dropping his number, right? He's sort of testing God here, right? And he gets all the way down to 10. And he says, God, how about 10? Now imagine this. Imagine you go to New York City, right, or, or Las Vegas. Pick a place that in your mind is like the epitome of like sin and debauchery and go, hey, God, if there's 10 righteous people in Las Vegas... Will you spare Las Vegas from destruction? And God ultimately says, yes, for the sake of ten, I will spare the city. I'll spare the entire city of wicked, of wicked people for the sake of ten righteous. What kind of God do we serve? What kind of God do we love? The one who would spare an entire city of evil, uh, wicked people for ten righteous. Unfortunately, there weren't even ten. <laughs> so the story goes on. And God destroys the place. And even still, even still, he goes in. It's like SEAL Team 6 on this rescue mission, right? And the two angels go in there, and they're like, all right, Lot, you, your sons, your son's wife, let's, let's go. They're going to grab the whole family. And like his daughter's husbands, it says in the story, are like, nah, man, we don't, we don't believe that. We're hanging out. We're staying here. Unto their own destruction. So Lot, his wife, and his two daughters, four people. Get out of the city. And so as they're coming out of the city, unfortunately, um, Lot's wife, she gets out of the city. But much like us, when we return to our past sins, she takes one look back. And God had said, when you go out, I'm going to deliver you. But don't look back at the city. She does. It's, she's overwhelmed. She looks back. And she gets turned into a pillar of salt. Right? So again, even in the midst of God's God's made this way of deliverance. God said, hey, I'm going to get y'all out. I'm going to protect you. And still, she couldn't, she couldn't leave her past behind. She couldn't leave behind the former pleasures of sin. I think that speaks to some of us, right? And it speaks to me, right? How many times has God blessed me and, and, and done amazing things for me? And I know something's sin, and yet I look at it, I'm like, I don't know, man. It still looks pretty good. It looks kind of fun. Might do it. All right, so picking up the story again, now we go over to Egypt. Abraham, there's been a couple more generations, he's got this great-grandson named Joseph, right? And Joseph is one of 12 brothers. His brothers sell him into slavery. Through slavery, he ends up in Egypt, where he kind of has this up-and-down roller coaster of trusting God, doing great things, and then getting tossed in prison for it. And it happens not once, but twice, right? Ultimately, God blesses Joseph and sort of establishes the Hebrew nation uh, is almost like co-rulers in Egypt for a little while. Like Joseph is second only to Pharaoh in all of Egypt. So there's this time of blessing. Well, then a new Pharaoh comes, the people's hearts, uh, or the Pharaoh's heart gets turned, and the Hebrews get turned into slaves. So we're going to pick up in Exodus 3, 7 and 8. 
And God says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Land flowing with milk and honey. I mean, like, Eden was cool. But can you imagine, like, rivers of milk and honey? Like, you brew your coffee, and you just go take a dip out of this river and a dip out of that river and stir it up, and you're ready to go, right? What a good God. What what a heart for his people. It's not just, hey, I'm going to take you out of slavery, and then y'all can struggle through life like the rest of the world does and set you on equal footing. He said, no, I'm going to take you out of slavery. Take you way up here, the best place you can imagine. Right? So again, God's taking, trying to make it good. Like in the Garden of Eden, we saw it and it was good. So sometimes we read this and we think, well, yeah, duh, of course they deserve it. They were slaves, they were beaten, they were oppressed. Like they deserve, you know, karma, right? A turn in their favor, right? Well, let's put this back in context. This is the same human race who disobeyed God in the garden, who murdered a brother, was so wicked that God basically started over again with a flood. Immediately following the new earth, they are like, hey, let's build this tower and get ourselves to heaven, right? And then they lived in the gross debauchery that was Sodom and Gomorrah. And this all happens in like a few generations. (laughs) And so it's not to necessarily say that Hebrews are evil, Or that, yes, they are, and also we are, and also all of mankind is, right? And so, did they deserve to be delivered? No. (laughs) Is God merciful? Absolutely. So, when we look at this stuff, let's, let's put it sort of in the context. I don't think it's mental gymnastics to do it. I think it's really just, like, let's, let's look at what happened here. People didn't keep up their end of the bargain, and God lifted them out of it. And they're here, and then people don't keep up their end of the bargain, and then God lifts them out of it again. And it's continually seeking their good in spite of our mankind's behavior. I mean, really, instead of being shocked at the judgment of the Old Testament, I think we could almost say we ought to be shocked at the goodness and the faithfulness of God returning over and over again. Let's make a way. Let's get you guys out of this. Come on. Come up here. Come with me. So back to the story. If you know Moses and then Joshua, then you know that God works incredible miracles on their behalf, not only just to deliver them, right? So through all like the plagues and and coming out of Egypt with literally the Egyptians like throwing gold at them (laughs) as they're (laughs) leaving the city. Um, But then part the Red Sea, walk through it on dry ground, pillars of clouds, pillars of fire, magic bread from heaven, spies, giants, Cities that crumble at a shout. I mean, y'all, Lord of the Rings ain't got nothing on the Old Testament. <laughs> Some serious, serious, I mean, and, and it's, not, it's not made up. It's not fantasy. This is, this is our God. It's like Hollywood is a shadow that points to the glory and the goodness of God on behalf of his people. So throughout all these accounts... All the kings, the judges, and the prophets that follow sort of this nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament. 
we see the same pattern where the people forsake God and yet God reaches out and tries to pull them up. Come on, guys, come where it's good. And yet, try as they might, mankind still just kind of seems to keep falling short. There are good kings and bad kings. There are good judges and bad ones, good prophets and bad prophets. I mean, ultimately, even King David, right, he's the man after God's heart, right? He's, he's the one. And they're like, this, this dude is it, right? I mean, he's 14 years old and kills the giant. That's, and that's sort of his, his entrance into this thing. He gets to become king, right? You know, it's the whole Saul is slain his thousands and David is ten thousands and all of this stuff that points to this dude as, man, he's the guy. And ultimately, the guy who slays the giant was unable to slay the sin in his own heart. Moses led the people out of slavery, right? Take an entire nation. And Moses, who, who stutters, and Moses who says, God, I can't, I can't go before them. And Moses who throws down his staff and it turns into a serpent. This dude leads an entire nation into freedom and sees the absolute hand of God. And in a moment gets so frustrated with the people that he hits a rock instead of speaking to it. And loses his opportunity to see the promised land. He could deliver the people out of slavery, but he couldn't take them into freedom. Why? He's a man. He's got sin in his heart. Humanity needs someone like Abraham, who interceded on behalf of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Someone that will, as Hebrews 7.25 says, live to make intercession for us. And that scripture is actually talking about Jesus. It says that he lives to make intercession for us. Jesus, if, if Abraham had the boldness to go before God and say, what about 10? Scripture says that he leaves the 99 for the one, speaking about Jesus. Jesus said, God, for one, for one, I'd lay down my life. For one, I would make a way. We need someone like Noah who would hear the voice of the Lord and lay down his own thoughts and his own ambitions and simply obey despite the lack of sense that it might make in that moment. I mean, rain? What is rain? To Noah, it never rained on the earth. And God says, I'm going to flood the earth with rain. I want you to build a boat so you can float. And Noah doesn't even know what the word rain means. And yet he goes, okay, God, you say build the boat? What is a boat? Okay, get the wood? Sure, the wood. And measure it with my arm? All right, sure, here we go. Let's do it. And his obedience does it. And his obedience saves him and his family and, and you know, a, a portion of animals that re, repopulate the earth. But again, like the next thing we see in Scripture is the Tower of Babel. So none of these dudes as anointed and obedient and marvelous as all of them were, as foreshadowings and types of Christ. They're not Jesus. None of them is the whole package. And Scripture would say in Isaiah as a prophecy of Jesus that he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. 
Guys, Jesus is the answer. There's no version, there's no Messiah except Jesus. There's no, the next president, the, the next governor, the next elected official, the next very uh, charismatic personal leader, Steve Jobs or, or whoever. None of those guys are it. Do you think that Steve Jobs is equal to like Moses? <laughs> Not even a little bit, right? But, but we, we as a society want to worship that. Why do we want to worship these, these, these personalities? Why do we care what, I don't know, Jay-Z or, or whoever is doing? Because ultimately it's written sort of into the human heart to look for this Messiah. We, need, we know intrinsically that there's no version of us that can do this. And we need someone to get us there. And the only answer is Jesus. And not only is he like the only answer, like, man, well, I guess we got to settle for Jesus. No. Like, y'all, he is it. He's beautiful. He's glorious. Next week, Duck's going to come, and Duck's going to flesh out the Jesus part a little bit more. And I am I'm excited to see what that's going to be. But ultimately, Jesus is the answer. So let's, let's wrap up here. Um, one last scripture, Hebrews 3.3. 3. Again, this is the last verse of what we opened with. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. That means that the creator is worthy of more glory than the thing he creates, right? Do you marvel at the carving or do you marvel at the carpenter who carved the carving? Right? Do you marvel at the carving or at the carpenter who carved the carving? So why is Jesus worthy of more glory than Moses? Because he's the lasting, complete, eternal, once and for all fulfillment of God's redemption of mankind to himself. It's done. Once and for all, Jesus has done the work. It's up to us to come to him, to submit to him to have him into our hearts, to let his spirit consume you and be able to lead you and guide you as we think and as we talk and as we act with other people and as we try to not do people stuff, right? All right, let's stand. We're going to have communion now.